Good morning. What a fantastic worship set this morning, wasn't that great? Wow. Some mornings you think, I don't really need to preach now, it's like, got it all. Fantastic. So, uh, this morning I'm going to, uh, <clears throat> we're going to look at a, a subject that perhaps is not often tackled when we come together on a Sunday. In fact, it's maybe not often tackled at any time because we're going to look at the interior life of the great apostle Paul. What's going on inside of him? We have, of course, a testimony. We have the record, the narrative that gives us a clear understanding of the things that he did in his missionary journeys and even the things that he did before he knew Jesus. And so we have the storyline. But you know as well as I do that what's going on on the outside is not always what's going on on the inside. And in our passage today, and as we reference some of the other things that Paul was writing at this time and at other times, we begin to get an insight into what's going on in the heart of Paul in these particular moments of his life as an apostle. And the reason that we're going to do this today is so that we can learn to understand some of the ways that God wants to help us with our internal life. I'm going to read portions of the passage that we have in front of us and then make some comments as we go, rather than reading the whole thing, because it'll be quite long if we do that. So let's look at Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. It picks up the story as Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth further south in the Greek peninsula. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, Emperor Claudius, who reigned up to around about, I think, AD 54, was a well-known emperor for the way in which he looked to order the empire. Different, different emperors were known for different things, but, but Claudius, who was a fairly unassuming character, not particularly charismatic, was remarkably good at understanding how to build the administration of the empire. And it was under his oversight that Rome became kind of congenitally afraid of urban unrest. They were deeply, deeply suspicious of anything that would cause tumult in the urban areas of the empire. Suetonius his historian tells us that the tumult in Rome was created, was caused in the Jewish community by a man called Crestus. Crestus is a familiar and common misspelling of the word Christus. And so most historians and theologians believe that what was going on in the Jewish quarter of Rome, which had tens of thousands of people in it, a very prosperous 
and well-known quarter of Rome at the time was that there was a disturbance because of the division that existed within the community there and throughout the rest of the world about who Jesus was. Was he Christus or was he not? Was he the Christ? Was he the Messiah or not? So Claudius throws all of them out. Tens of thousands of people are told to exit Rome and to leave their property behind. And of course, the homeland of the Jews is, of course, Israel and many of the cities of the eastern Mediterranean. And so coming to that part of the Mediterranean required of them to get a boat to Corinth. The boat would then be disembarked. They would take all of the baggage out of the, out of the ships. They'd put the ships on rollers and roll them the nine kilometers to Centraea. They didn't come up with an idea like a canal until about 2,000 years later, but they rolled the boats on rollers all the way to Centraea, put the baggage and stuff back in, and then sailed on. Well, that often caused a little bit of a, a bottleneck, and if you've got tens of thousands of people, it creates a big refugee crisis. And what do you need in a refugee crisis? You need tents. Verse 3. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in their synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, Paul tells us in Philippians a letter that he will write later on in his ministry from his imprisonment in Rome, that he remembers the Philippians because they were the only church in Europe at the time who were prepared to support him in his ministry. He never asked for support. He always tended towards looking after himself and, and kind of creating his own income from his ability as a tent maker. But a gift was sent from the Philippian church through Timothy and Silas that released Paul from having to work daily with Aquila and Priscilla. He lived still within their household, the Greek word oikos, suggesting their extended family. He still functioned with them in their home, but now he was released to daily preach the good news. And of course, he's preaching the good news to a growing assembly of Jewish people who have a deep discussion, a deep debate, a deep conflict about whether Jesus is the Christ. And of course, Paul is demonstrating in every way he knows how that that happens to be the case. Verse 6, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, uh, when Paul uh, received the gift from Silas and Timothy, he also received the report of the church in Thessalonica. You'll remember at the beginning of this, this part of his journey, he plants a church in Philippi and then goes to Thessalonica, having been locked up in Philippi and the earthquake setting him free. 
He goes to Thessalonica and there is opposed by several people and they have to escape and go to Berea. And there they have a little bit more success, but eventually they catch up with Paul and Paul has to escape by himself and go to Athens. And so he's anxious to hear what's going on in all of these churches that have been planted. And Timothy and Silas come and give him a report. And that begins the correspondence that we know to be First and Second Thessalonians. He deals in those letters mostly with what will happen in the end times. What is it that Jesus is, is planning and what is it that we need to be doing to prepare ourselves for the plans of Jesus to return. But here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul reveals something of his own concern. He's, he's, of course, dealing with their concerns, but in the midst of dealing with their concerns, it's as though the things that are in his heart begin to spill over. I'll read to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not everyone has faith. Wicked and evil men, people who are hell-bent on causing Paul harm and stopping him from making the testimony that he so much wants to share with the world. So what's happening with Paul? Why is it that in the midst of a letter, brief as it is, where he's dealing with the concerns of an infant church, that these things spill over? Wicked and evil men are pursuing him. He's there in Corinth trying to deal with the Corinthian situation and at the same time thinking about the churches that have been planted. What's happening in his heart? Well, perhaps we can begin to understand what's happening in his heart when we look what it is that he says to the people that oppose him. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. Now it's unusual for Paul to go beyond the words and the commission of Jesus. Jesus, when he sends out his disciples, he says to them, look for the person of peace, but if you find no people of peace, then wipe the dust off your feet and move on. Paul chooses to use the words of the ancient prophets and calls down a curse on them. Your blood be on your own heads. Why would Paul do that? It seems unusual that he should go a little further than the biblical warrant. It seems strange that something like that should come from his lips. Clearly, these are the evil and wicked men who are pursuing him. When a dog barks, I brought Barney to church today. You may hear him barking. He barks at everybody. Barney, that's him. Barnabas, we call him. When Barnabas barks, it could be because he's aggressive. But if you spend 30 seconds with Barney you know that there's not 
there's not one aggressive bone in his body. It's almost inconceivable that anything aggressive would come from him. And yet, he sounds aggressive. Actually, he's frightened. He's not sure what's going on, and so the first thing that he thinks to do is to bark. It's fear that is generating the response in Barney's life. And I would suggest to you that fear is what is in the heart of Paul. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of all of the things that have happened to him up to this time. Let me just remind you of them. He's been beaten with the 39 lashes five times, which means that he's been excommunicated from five synagogues. And each of those five synagogues has beaten him within an inch of his, of his life. He's bled from open wounds and has had to be nursed back to health afterwards. That's what the 39 lashes is. It's an appalling torture and an appalling punishment. And he had that five times. On top of that, those wounds and scars have been opened again and again when he's been beaten with rods. And that means that it's been Roman authorities. The rod is the instrument of punishment among the Romans. He's been beaten with rods three times. He's been shipwrecked three times. He's been in the water a day and a night. He's been in danger in the countryside, in cities, from people that he should trust, his fellow countrymen, and from foreigners. Now today, we would fully expect someone who has been brutalized in such a way for such a long time, perhaps more than a decade, to suffer what we would call PTSD. Just the thought of opposition would cause his pulse to race. Just the thought of what might happen at the hands of wicked and evil men would cause him to suffer again the flashbacks, to feel again those haunts in the night, sleepless, in turmoil. Paul would most certainly know fear. And if we're uncertain that that's the case, <clears throat> we just need to read on. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door, this is verse 7, to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Now Jesus, of course, does reveal himself to all of us by his presence in our lives through his spirit. But it's an unusual thing for Jesus to come personally in a vision and speak directly 
with those who are his followers. It's just an unusual thing. What is it that's in the mind of Jesus? Why is it that he comes? Is he just coming and sharing platitudes with Paul? Don't be afraid, Paul, it'll be okay. Is it just a a sentimental greeting from the Lord of heaven? Or is it because these are the things that Paul actually needs to hear at this moment? You see, I think Paul is revealed in the way that he deals with the opposition. He's deeply afraid. He's deeply fearful for the consequences of the opposition that he faces. But on the outside, what you see is this apparent act of bravado. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm going next door. Imagine, here's the synagogue, and he moves next door to the church and plants a church right there. I mean, it's fairly brazen, isn't it? So on the outside, it really does look as though Paul has it all together, but on the inside, there's a lot more going on. And isn't that true of all of us? On the inside of my heart, I regularly experience rejection and feelings of abandonment. I've taught you about it. It makes me feel exposed and afraid, fearful. On the outside, I'm six foot four and scary with an English accent, so I must be in control of everything. What is Jesus trying to do? What is he trying to do with Paul? And what is he trying to do with us? The first thing that Jesus wants Paul to do is to acknowledge what's there. Don't be afraid. No one is going to attack and harm you. The first step of inner healing The first step of God reordering our inner lives is acknowledging what's there. Anthony DeMello, in writing the rather remarkable book on spirituality called Awareness, just before he died, the transcripts were put together and the book was published. And in there he says, that from his perspective of reading the great Christian mystics down through the ages and his own experience as a wise counselor, he has discovered that there are only two big things in the world, fear and love. And most things that are going on inside of us are masking fear. For me, Fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of being alone. For you, I don't know. For Paul, fear of physical suffering, fear of shame. Again, fear of rejection, and we'll see why in a moment. But Jesus doesn't waste words when he comes to give a personal vision. This is clearly what's going on. 
in the heart of Paul. What's going on in your heart and what is it that Jesus wants you to acknowledge? Now, if we continue with the story, we discover that the opposition against Paul really heats up. They bring him to the governor Gallio, and he throws the, he throws the, um, the whole thing out of the court. He says, this is ridiculous. This is all about Jewish laws and words. It's, it's got nothing to do with me. And he throws them out, and they beat up the new synagogue leader called Sosthenes out on the streets. Now, obviously, this is a, a moment for Sosthenes to feel the full force of the people that are after Paul because instead of getting Paul, they get Sosthenes. But interestingly, Sosthenes becomes a believer because by the time Paul writes his first letter to the church in Corinth, it comes from Paul and Sosthenes. Isn't that interesting? And then in verse 18, it says this. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centraea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, which is the coastal city in Israel, he went up and greeted the church. Went up is always the metaphor for going to Jerusalem. So he went to Jerusalem and greeted the church there and then went down to Antioch. You always go up to Jerusalem and you go down to everywhere else. So what's going on? Paul gets to the end of his time in Corinth. Jesus has told him that he won't be harmed, and sure enough, he hasn't been, but it's been a hair's breadth, hasn't it? It's been a trying and difficult time. The fears within him have not been abated. He's acknowledged them, but there's another step that needs to be taken. And maybe Paul knows that there's another step that needs to be taken, but he, he doesn't know what the step is. And so he makes a vow. It's called a Nazarite vow. He has all of the hair shaved off his body, including his eyebrows. He gets all of the hair. Let's hope he's not a hairy man. Let's hope he's a Jacob and not an Esau. But whichever way, a very sharp knife is applied to his body, and he takes all of the hair and puts it in a bag. Now, the Nazarite vow means that they have simple food and no alcohol until they fulfill the vow, which is usually fulfilled in Jerusalem. And the way that it's fulfilled is that you hand over the bag of your body hair to the priest. And as you do that, it's the symbol of you making your petition to God. Now, I'm not going to argue for this. You can either take my word for it or not. But my best guess is what happened is this. Paul gets to the end of his time in Corinth and he knows that although the acknowledgement of fear is there, he doesn't know what to do with it. He makes his Nazarite vow. When he comes back to Corinth, 
Some years later, when he's writing the letter to Romans, he'll talk about being a living sacrifice on the altar of the Lord. And so he's taking this bag as a living representation of himself. And he gives it to the priest, and the priest puts it onto the fires of the altar. And there, I believe, Paul asks the Lord, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he asks him three times to remove the thorn in his flesh. Now everybody has, I say everybody, lots of people have debated what the thorn in the flesh is. But the thorn in the flesh debate is only because people don't read the Bible. There's only one reference to a thorn in the flesh in the Bible. And it's when God says to Moses, give this news, give this direction, give this counsel to the people before they go into the land and tell them to get rid of the Canaanites or they will be thorns in their flesh. It's people that are thorns. Paul talks about them as a messenger of Satan. He talks about them being given to him because of the great and surpassing revelations that he's received so that he remains humble. But three times he asks the Lord, get rid of the cause of my fears. Get rid of the, the instruments of my, of, my, of my anxiety. But Jesus has another step for Paul beyond acknowledgement. Second Corinthians 12 verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is it that Jesus wants for Paul? He wants him to acknowledge the fear. And then he wants him to accept it. He wants him to accept it, to embrace it as a reality of his life. You can't avoid this, Paul. And Paul, the only person that I can change right now is you. Because all of those other people they need to give me permission to change them. And they haven't. Because Jesus changes us with our permission. And so we go from acknowledgement to acceptance. This really is me. I can't avoid it. 
This really is part of me. I, I, can't, I can't say that it's not. I can't just quote Bible verses and say, I can do all things through Christ. It sounds hollow. It sounds like a religious recitation of something that is not true. Because I know that it's there. Jesus has said it's there. And so the only solution I have is that Jesus does something with me. And what is it that he wants to do? Well, of course he wants me to be rescued. Of course he wants me to be redeemed. Of course he wants me to be liberated because that's part of his grace. But it's his grace that will do it, not my striving. It's his grace that will do it, not my manipulating of circumstances. It's his grace that will do it, not me seeking to change another person's life, because I can't. I need to receive his grace. I need to receive, in the place of fear and emptiness, the filling of his unmeasured, undeserved love for me. And I need to get to the place of believing that with whatever it is that's within me, he still loves me as much as he ever could. In fact, with the revelation of these things, he definitely doesn't love me less. And with the revelation of these things, it feels as though Jesus is saying, now I can enter into this space if you let me. If you'll let me come into this brokenness, if you'll let me come into this frailty, if you will go beyond acknowledgement to an acceptance of the reality of these things, then you can, with that acceptance, receive me too. Because you see, if you won't accept it, then I can't change it. If you won't accept it as true, then I can't change it from that circumstance to another one. If you, don't, if you do not embrace it, how can I embrace it and change it? And so from acknowledgement, we make the journey to acceptance. And listen to what Paul hears Jesus say. My grace is enough to fill up all the spaces of emptiness. My grace is enough to fill up the yawning vacuum of fear. My grace is enough to cover your frailties and sin. My grace is enough because you've seen my grace. It's enough for you. And in this place, I will fill your weakness with power. And instead of the power just flowing through your charisma, 
Instead of the power just flowing through the talents that I've given you, instead of the power just flowing through the gifts, which when you look at your internal life seem to be such a small percentage of what's there, instead of that, my power flows through all of it. It flows through the weak stuff. Through the rubbish, through the difficulties, through all of the stuff. That's how much grace there is. If we will make the journey from acknowledgement to acceptance. Acknowledgement releases us from unreality. Acceptance releases the power of Jesus to work. And then there's one final step. Paul has expressed it all for us, hasn't he? He's articulated it. It has to alliterate. Acknowledge, accept, articulate. What is the articulation producing? It's producing a release in you and it's producing a release in me, isn't it? You don't have to share your stuff with everybody. But if you share it with one person, you'll release them to make the journey too. The journey from acknowledgement to acceptance to the articulation of what is true. And how is it all possible? Because of the grace of Jesus. Who in the night that he was betrayed took bread and after giving thanks he gave it to his disciples saying take, eat this is my body broken for you In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, the cup of blessing, and said, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins for the cleansing of life, for the renewing of your heart, for the release of power in your weakness. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, thank you that you made a way. Thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to have a relationship healed with the Father. Thank you, Jesus, that by your stripes we are healed, that our bodies can be healed. 
and will one day know no pain. You'll wipe away every tear. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal that truth in our experience here as you bring healing to bodies. And thank you, Lord, that one day, on that great day, when the heavens part and the angels cry, you'll heal every heart. And thank you, Lord, that you're in the business now of beginning that wonderful work. And as we, Lord, acknowledge what is in our hearts, good, bad, and indifferent, and as we accept what is true of ourselves, Lord, we invite you to reveal to us how sufficient your grace is and how your power truly is made perfect in our weakness. Band are going to lead us, of course. But, of course, some of you have to make this journey. And it may be today the journey is a journey of acceptance. It may be that it's the earlier journey of acknowledgement or it's the journey of expressing what's inside. We've learned now, haven't we, that it's so helpful for us to have a public place where others will stand with us in prayer. A place where we can respond to what it is that God's saying. If you want someone to pray with you as you respond to what God has said and done, then just find a place on one of the large carpets. If you want no one to pray with you, but you just want to spend this time of acceptance and acknowledgement and articulation, by yourself, then just go to one of the small mats on either side. No one will trouble you. But you know you need to take this step today. Some of you who've never been forward, today is the day. Because today is the day when you mark the continuation of the journey. From acknowledgement to acceptance. From acceptance to expressing what's there inside. You come as the band plays.